Our first um, scripture reading tonight is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. Matthew 5, 21 to 32. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to, be, to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. A man once went to see a lawyer. What are your fees for a half an hour session, he asked. 500 pounds, the lawyer replied. And in that half an hour, I will answer up to three questions. 500 pounds. It's a lot of money. Is, it, is that expensive as lawyers go? The lawyer smiled and answered no. So what's your third question? <laughs> 
lawyers make a lot of money out of interpreting exactly what the law means and how it should be applied. And life seems to get increasingly complicated when they do. The government's simple proposal to live a 5p charge in all plastic carrier bags in England in 2015 seems like a good idea, but once the law begins to examine it, it gets complicated. Is it going to apply to all shops or just supermarkets? If your Chinese takeaway supplies your food in a plastic bag, are you going to have to pay for that? Um, what if the plastic bag is biodegradable? What about a paper bag or a bag for life? And the more they start to pick it apart, the harder it becomes to find a law that can simply be applied. There were lawyers around in Jesus' day whose job it was to interpret and apply the law of God to every part of everyday life. We all know that there are Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, even if we can't quite remember what they are. Studied students of the law found that there were 613 commandments in the Jewish Testament, but even these didn't cover every eventuality in everyday living. So the law, the halakha, was expanded and interpreted in the six parts of the Mishnah, and that in turn was codified in the Talmud, which comes in two different editions. And the lawyers who did all this minute detailed, minuscule, painstaking interpretation of the law, weren't doing it to make money out of it. Their devotion to understanding the law of God stemmed from a genuine desire to honour God in the keeping of it. If it was important that you kept God's law, they wanted to establish precisely what the law meant, down to the finest details, every jot and tittle of the text. So take, for example, the commandment, do not murder. That's the NIV translation. The authorised version simply says, thou shalt not kill, which is far more wide-ranging, really, than the prohibition of murder. And the word used in the Old Testament is used both of murder and of unintentional accidental killing. So the authorised version is actually more accurate here in terms of its word-for-word equivalence in the translation. What the NIV has done is taken a lawyer's view of the text. Look at the times when killing is permitted in the Old Testament. You, you can kill your enemies in battle. The crimes of adultery or Sabbath-breaking or idolatry carry the death penalty. So although it says, thou shalt not kill, the translator said, actually, it must mean thou shalt not murder, because sometimes killing is permitted. So even in our translation, you have a strong degree of interpretation about what the law actually means and how it is applied. And that's the kind of distinction that lawyers love to get their teeth into. This is what it says, you think you understand it. Ah, but this is what it really means if you understand it properly. So the teachers of the law in Jesus' day interpreted the question of what does it mean, thou shalt not kill? would have investigated the difference between murder and manslaughter and how do you deal justly with someone who's taken another person's life. There is plenty of scope for legal and ethical debates. When is it murder? When is it manslaughter? How do you distinguish between the two? What is the appropriate punishment depending on the circumstances of this person's death? Jesus cuts through all of that and gets back to basics. The point of the law is that taking someone else's life is wrong. Okay, if I get angry and I lose my temper with someone and hit them, 
and, and I don't mean to kill them, but they fall down and hit their head against a, the corner of a table and, uh, and die as a result. Am I guilty of murder or, or manslaughter if it's accidental? And lawyers can pick apart my intentions and the unintended consequences of my actions and whether or not I was provoked. But Jesus says, look, if you hadn't have got angry in the first place and lost your temper, it wouldn't have happened. So let's get behind the kind of, you know, is this murder, is this not, what kind of killing is it? What you need to do is get your anger under control. Lawyers might be concerned about whether or not you broke a commandment, but God looks at the attitudes behind the actions. And if you are angry enough to lash out at somebody else, you are in serious trouble already. And that's just not a physical lashing out. If you lash out verbally, calling someone thick or stupid or an idiot, demolishing their personality of not actually taking their life, that can hurt them deeply and cause significant damage to them. But behind the words that you say on the spur of the moment is the anger that you feel. And God is concerned with the root causes of why we say the things we do and why we, we do the things we do. Anger is poisonous. And God wants to remove it from our hearts because if we speak and act in anger, we cause so much damage to other people. We may not physically strike them, we may not take their life, but nevertheless, the anger that is within us is a problem that God wants to deal with. And you also have a responsibility to other people. If you know that somebody else is angry with you because you've upset them in some way, then God calls you to go and try and sort it out with them. Such is the value and the importance he places on our relationships with each other that he says, if you come into the temple to bring your offering before God and realise as you pray that someone is upset with you, you should leave your gift on the altar and go and be reconciled with the person whom you have upset before bringing your gift. I was glad to see that having had that reading and the offering immediately afterwards, nobody got up and walked out of the church at that point. Maybe you just didn't have the courage to do it. I don't know. Leave your offering, go and sort it out with the person that you've wronged and then come back and bring your offering to God. Bishop Festo Kivendra, who, who ministered in Uganda for a long time, tells the story of how he was going off to preach and he'd had a row with his wife. And on, on the way he felt the Holy Spirit saying to him, go back, go home and pray with your wife. Lord, I've, I've got to preach in 20 minutes. I'll, I'll go and preach the sermon, I'll come back and talk to my wife afterwards. He felt the Holy Spirit saying to him, fine, you go and preach, I'll stay at home with your wife. You need to sort these things out. What about adultery? Major rabbinic debates in Jesus' day about grounds for adultery. The law talks about getting a divorce because of something unseemly. And the school of Hidale adopted quite a a flexible, lenient approach to this. If your wife burnt your dinner, that was something unseemly, that was sufficient grounds for divorce in their eyes. The school of Shammai were far stricter, only adultery constituted sufficient grounds for divorce. Where does adultery begin and end? Those of us old enough to remember Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky will remember his famous declaration, I did not have sexual relations with that woman which technically may have been true, but it pretty much did everything else but have sexual relationships with that woman. Was it adultery or not? He's playing with words here. And again, Jesus cuts through all that. Adultery starts by indulging an attraction to another person in your mind and in your heart. 
you don't physically need to sleep with them to allow a, for adultery actually to be part of your thinking. And there are all sorts of ways, if you're attracted to someone, of innocently developing that attraction, taking you know, tiny steps towards them. But each step actually is a step down the hill in the direction of adultery. Some of you would have watched the recent BBC drama, uh, The 739, about this couple that kind of have a falling out on the train and end up you know, having a relationship with each other. And you can see, as the drama unfolds, all the red lights that they cross in their relationship with each other. Nothing inherently wrong with any of the things they say or do, but you can see that because the attraction is there every time, they are kind of breaking through a barrier to the point where it becomes very, very difficult to stop. And again, Jesus is getting back to the root causes of adultery. The, the, the time to deal with it is here, in your mind, before you actually do anything physically wrong. Jesus knows it starts in the heart. If you look at a woman with lust in your mind, you have already committed adultery in your heart. As soon as you start to entertain those thoughts in your imagination, that is being disloyal to your wife or to your husband, he says. Get your heart right, because that's the key to avoiding the wrong behaviour. And don't suppose that you can rationalise your way out of adultery by making sure that you've divorced your wife or husband before you get into bed with number two. God's intention and purpose is that marriage should be for life. Yes, if the other person runs off, there may be nothing you can do about that. But God's heart is not into providing clear definitions of adultery as suitable grounds for divorce. God's heart is for marriages to last. And that means being faithful here and being faithful here. Making sure that you are not responsible for any drifting apart in the relationship. What about swearing an oath to verify the truth of your words? Again, the Lord has had a field day with us. Jesus has, how can you say, you know, I swear by the temple. If you swear by the temple, that, that, that's not a real oath. But if you swear by the gold on the temple then that is binding. Oh, I swear by the altar. Well, if you, if you swear by the altar, that's not binding. But if you swear by the offering on the altar, then you are bound by your vow. Those are the kind of minute technical details that they were preoccupied with. When is an oath binding? When is an oath not binding? You know, when can you say something that perhaps you can wriggle out of at a later stage? Again, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. If ever... You need to promise that this time you are really telling the truth. What does that say about all the other times when you just say yes or no? If you need to promise or vow that you are telling the truth, that implies that the rest of the time you are not bound by a natural commitment to be honest. And that implies, if you, if you say, I promise I'm telling the truth, that, that implies that other times you might be, feel free to lie because you've not bound yourself with any kind of oath or vow. So you can well understand why he says your yes should mean yes, and your no should mean no. Any qualification of that basic principle of honesty doesn't come from God, it comes from the evil one. That incidentally is why it's very hard to get a straight yes or no answer out of me, because life is always more complicated than that. But if we're followers of Jesus, we are to be like sticks of rock 
the same all the way down in the core of who we are. So at whatever point you break us open, it's the same. At whatever point you look inside, it's the same. There is no discrepancy between what people see on the outside and what we're really like on the inside. It's not about conforming to regulations, you see. It's about a heartfelt desire to live the whole of your life with integrity for God. All this is challenging stuff, but it gets really tough on the principle of non-retaliation. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's simple and straightforward. It's a simple way of, of establishing justice and ensuring that justice gets done. Though Gandhi was absolutely right to say, if, law, if this law is applied, then the whole world ends up being blind. But because of human nature, the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth so easily degenerates into a spiral of violence. If you hit me and I hit you back, the odds are I'm going to hit you back harder because it hurts. And if I hit you back harder, then you're going to want to hit me back again. It's almost inevitable that the most recently injured party wants to get their own back, and so the whole thing degenerates into a feud that can last for generations. Africa is a continent we grieve over constantly, but the Central African Republic, where the major problem at the moment is Christian militias exacting retribution on the Muslims who gave them a hard time when the Islamists received, uh, took power last year. So now there is talk of ethnic cleansing and a perpetuation of violence here because they are living by an eye for an eye. You did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. And it perpetuates and deepens and furthers the damage and the harm and makes any possibility of peace that more remote. Forgiveness is when the party most recently hurt says it stops now with me. Turning the other cheek, I'm not going to pursue an eye for an eye. I'm not going to go for a tooth for a tooth. There will be no more retaliation. I accept what you've done for me. I draw a line here. This is where it ends. No moving further down the spiral of violence. I choose to deal with my enemies by forgiving them rather than fighting them. That decision marks the followers of Jesus out as being different. The danger of returning tit for tat, you see, is that you end up being as bad as the people who did the wrong in the first place. And there are those who see Jesus' words as a means of empowering people who otherwise would be completely powerless. It takes a backhanded slap to hit someone on the right cheek. This is not a kind of brawl. This is a, a backhanded step that is designed to convey insult, to be degrading, to be dismissive. It's intended to humiliate someone or create an excuse for a fight. And the instinctive response, isn't it, if someone insults you, is to lash back again. To choose not to do that is a measure of your own self-control. So I'm not going to be like you. I'm not going to respond in the same way as you have treated me. To refuse to give in to the temptation to retaliate, to establish self-control, is a measure of dignity. If someone wants to humiliate you by taking you to court to get the shirt off your back, why give them the satisfaction of thinking that matters? Let them have your coat as well. 
and walk away leaving them feeling small for making an issue of something that you are showing doesn't matter to you. If a Roman soldier compelled you to carry his pack for a mile, as they were allowed to do, volunteer to carry it for another mile. By doing this, you retain the initiative and demonstrate they haven't taken away your freedom to choose. All this is the ways in which powerless people can say, actually, you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other to me, but I choose how I will respond to that. And you will not break my spirit by the way in which you're treating me. It's about refusing to be degraded by the bullying tactics of other people. It's not about being a doormat. It's about not letting the aggressor provoke you into being as bad as they are. It's about choosing to find ways of showing that they haven't succeeded in humiliating you. But Jesus goes even further than this and talks about loving your enemies. It was typical of a lawyer when discussing the second greatest commandment, love your neighbour as yourself, to ask, so who is my neighbour then? You know, how wide do I have to draw that circle of people I am obliged to love? And outside that circle of those I'm obliged to love are my enemies. How am I supposed to treat them? Jesus says, there are no boundaries to that circle. There is no inner circle of people you are obliged to love and an outer circle of people you can treat indifferently or even hate if they are opposed to you. You love everybody without boundary, without exception, without reserve. Just like the Samaritan in the parable he told to the lawyer showed love to the hated Jewish man lying injured by the side of the road. God's love has no limits. He sends sun and rain on the good and wicked people without distinction because he loves us all in the same way. Your love should have no limits, no boundaries, draw no distinction between us and them. Every person you encounter is someone God loves. So greet them accordingly. Treat them accordingly. It's about aiming to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. All this all this is phenomenally difficult. Some would say it's impossible to attain, though Jesus did it. It's not really difficult to understand. The problem lies with putting it into practice. And G.K. Chesterton rightly said, the Christian ideal hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. None of us is going to be able to manage consistently living like this. But it's how Jesus calls us to live. As people who don't let the world squeeze us into its mould by infecting our hearts and minds with its standards and values, but we are people who say on the inside, Jesus be Lord. And to aim by the grace of Jesus to live that out on the outside. We are called to be like a stick of rock. At whatever point you break us open, you should be able to read the words, Jesus is Lord, written there in our minds, on our hearts, in our lives. Because it's written there by the Spirit of God. And God calls us to live as people of integrity. Let's pray.
Lord, we all recognise the hardness of those words. And we struggle sometimes to understand how they can be worked out in practice. Yet we recognise the truth of them. Help us to live your way. Times when we feel weak and powerless because of the way other people treat us or because of the temptations that cross our path or our lack of self-control. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Would you write those words that we sing and declare when we come here, Jesus is Lord, would you write them deep in our hearts and in our minds? Lord, perfection is a long way off. But would you shape and mould and change us to be more like you? You've given us the ideal. You've shown us how we should live. Lord, keep us from giving up because it's just too difficult. Help us with your help to work towards living how you would have us live. Being the people you'd have us be. People of integrity. We ask in your name.